And so, Lord, we agree with Michael in asking that you would be our vision. And God, that's certainly what I ask now as we preach, that you would be our vision and that you would cause us to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are, anything your heart desires will come to you. Listen. If your heart is in your dreams, no request is to extreme anything your heart desires will come to you. In his book, The Dawn Treader, in the Narnia series, C.S. Lewis writes about a moment in their voyage when, when they are traveling towards this uh, dark island. And out of the darkness they hear screaming. A man is swimming toward their boat in an absolute panic. They pick him up out of the sea and they put him on the deck of the Dawn Treader. And then Lewis writes this, the moment his feet reached the deck, he said, fly, fly, about with your ship and fly, row, row, row for your lives away from this cursed shore. Compose yourself, said Reepicheep, the mouse, and tell us what the danger is. We're not used to flying. Nevertheless, you will fly from here, he gasped. This is the island where dreams come true. Well, that's the island I've been looking for this long time, said one of the sailors. I reckoned I'd find I was married to Nancy if I landed here, and I'd find Tom alive again, said another. Fool, said the man, stamping his feet with rage. That's the sort of talk that brought me here, and I better have been drowned or never born. Do you hear what I say? This is where dreams, dream, do you understand me? Dreams come to life, they come real. Not daydreams, dreams. They think about that for a moment realizing what it would mean for dreams to come true, and then they start rowing like mad. Reepicheep, the mouse, he objects, and King Caspian the Brave says, Say what you like, Reepicheep. There are some things that no man can face. That is, never, ever wish upon a star. They escape only after Lucy whispers, Aslan, Aslan, if ever you loved us at all, send us help now. Years ago, I rented this science fiction movie called The Sphere. I don't remember it real well, but these scientists discover this sphere deep down in the depths of the ocean. A few of them, they enter the, the sphere, or one of them does, and then these strange things start to happen. They, they realize that their dreams are coming true, along with the fears that infect those dreams. In other words, their heart is in their, their dreams, and their dreams are coming true, and instead of being the heaven that we would expect, it's more like hell. The way they finally escaped is that a few of them dream that they never dreamt. In, in effect, they dream of dying to themselves. But how do you do that? Jesus, Jesus, is if, if ever you loved us, send help now. Save us from our dreams. When the dawn treader, the wild-eyed man, he cries out, not daydreams, dreams. You know, nightmares are terrifying. 
but daydreams may be more dangerous. My children were terrified of nightmares, but as a father, I was more worried about their daydreams. Coleman used to say, when I grow up, I'm going to be a backhoe. And I'd say, you mean you want to drive a backhoe? He'd say, no, be a backhoe. That's weird. <laughs> Becky used to dream of being a mermaid. A mermaid is a half-human, half-fish sort of thing that lives in the sea. Elizabeth, I'm pretty sure, wanted to be the dictator of her own country, and I was worried that she would succeed. She quit soccer because the coach told her what to do. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? Every night in his prayers, John would make us thank God for Chuck E. Cheese. At dinner, he'd always stop us and go, and Chuck E. Cheese, thank God for Chuck E. Cheese. John's lifelong dream was to live every minute of the rest of his life at Chuck E. Cheese. In a few weeks, we're driving John to graduate school at the Seattle School of Theology where he wants to study counseling and get an advanced degree in, in uh, therapy. And it, Well, imagine what would have happened if when John came to me and said that he wanted to go to graduate school, I, I, I would have said, John, oh gosh, um, I'm so glad you mentioned that because we've been waiting to tell you. Mom and I are just so excited, but well, we tapped into your savings account and, and we got some other investors to tap into your uh, savings account. We contributed some of our own, John, and, and check this out. Together we went, all went in and we bought the old Chuck E. Cheese down on Hampton and Santa Fe. And, and John, you are now the owner of a Chuck E. Cheese and you are going to manage that Chuck E. Cheese for the rest of your life. John, you don't have to go to graduate school. You are going to literally live at Chuck E. Cheese. Well, I imagine for John, that wouldn't have been heaven at that point, but more like hell. But you see, you get my point, that children need help with their dreams, and maybe you're a child just dreaming that you're grown up. Sometimes in nightmares, we imagine our fears as well as our desires, but dreams can also reveal what, what we truly desire. <laughs> oh, and that can be most frightening. You know, you wake up from a dream, yeah! According to Sigmund Freud, our dreams express the real desires in the depths of our hearts, what we actually want. Bernard Shaw wrote this, hell is where you must do what you want to do. Sigmund Freud taught that our dreams tell us what we really want to do in the depths of our hearts. The Bible says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Jesus said, out of the heart flows all manner of evil. Jiminy Cricket said, anything your heart desires will come to you. God, for God's sake, never, ever, ever wish upon a star. If your heart is, that's the last thing you want in your dreams, your heart. Sigmund Freud noted that dreams are completely egoistic. That is, in dreams, the, 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 the dreamer is always the point of the dream. I don't know how right Freud was in all of his dream analysis, but the Bible does point out that the human heart is tragically self-centered, if not by nature, by nurture. I mean, we all inherit a heart tremendously susceptible to a lie told by a snake. Take the fruit, and with it you can make yourself in the image and likeness of God. You can do it. Victor Hugo wrote, Always night 
Never blue skies, never dawn. We march, but so far we have not progressed an inch. We still dream what Adam dreamt. I think we all dream of being God. We dream of being the king. If you ask people, what do you really want, and you really discern their answer, I think you'll hear this answer, I want to be the king. And if you then ask, why do you want to be the king, they'll say, well, so that I can get what I want. And why do you want to get what you, you want? So I can be the king. You know, so I can get what I want. And I want to be the king, so I can get what I want. See, I don't think we really even know what we want. And may need some help with our dreams. We want to be God, and we don't know who or what God is. So when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and subjected creation to futility, which means you can no longer have just what you want, was that an act of retribution? Or mercy? If the world had worked for Adam and Eve entirely at that point, so that every wish they wished came true, and that every dream they dreamt came true, so that their individual will would never be subject to another individual's will, would that have been heaven or hell? You know, that's actually how C.S. Lewis pictures hell in The Great Divorce, a place where everyone gets what they want, but they no longer want what they get, and they can no longer want each other. St. Augustine pictured hell as this, these rows of endless, uh, endless rows of sealed rooms in which each soul worshipped at an altar devoted to itself in endless isolation. St. Paul, uh, he pictured the wrath of God kind of like that in Romans 1 as God giving people up. And what does he give them up to? The desires of their own hearts, their own flesh. Anything your heart desires will come to you. Is that Jiminy Cricket? Or perhaps Satan? Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, around Easter. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Well, two weeks ago, we preached on this passage and read what happens next. You know, the angel of the Lord delivers Peter from prison. At first, he thinks maybe he's just imagining it, and then he realized, no, this isn't a dream. This is real. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl, a slave girl named Rhoda, came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. Mene in Greek. It's, it's where we get the word maniac. They said, Rhoda, you're nuts. You're crazy. That's what we preached on two weeks ago. Rhoda, Rhoda, you, you're, you're, you're nuts. But she kept insisting that it was so. 
and they kept saying, It's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod, King Herod, searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God, the logos of God, the logic of God increased and multiplied. Isn't that something? You can outlaw the word of God. You can even crucify the word of God. But nothing is more potent than the word of God. Well, Herod the king is insane. And Rhoda is not insane. Rhoda is sane. I mean, there's quite a contrast between Rhoda and King Herod in Acts chapter 12. Rhoda is a servant girl or even a slave girl. She is the last and the least of the Jews. Herod is the first and the greatest of the Jews. He's king of the Jews. Rhoda suffers. She lets others have their way. Ephemi is a Greek word translated suffer, let, or even forgive. Rhoda surrenders her will to another's will. Uh, she has to. <laughs> she's a servant. She's, she's a slave. Herod does not suffer. Not really, not, not at least until the angel of God smites him. The king never submits his will to another person's will. He gets his way. I mean, isn't that what it means to be the king? No one listens to Rhoda or agrees with Rhoda. Everyone listens to Herod and agrees with Herod, at least in his presence. Even his pagan enemies from Tyre and Sidon, they're the ones that call, you're a voice of a god, not, not a man. No one agrees with Rhoda, and yet Rhoda seems to be happy. And around Rhoda, everything seems to, like, come to life. Around King Herod, everything dies. Rhoda is overjoyed, and she's filled with wonder. Herod is frustrated, miserable, and eaten by worms. Rhoda is most sane. She knows the truth. Herod is least sane. He hates the truth. Herod hates the truth like his grandfather Herod the Great hated the truth and had all the infants killed in Bethlehem because he was concerned about the birth of the king of the Jews. 
Herod hates the truth like his uncle Herod Antipas hated the truth and literally had the way, the truth, and the life crucified on a tree in a garden called Calvary. Now Herod Agrippa hates the word of truth and wants to be the truth. He wants to be the king of the Jews. And there can't be two king of the Jews. He wants to be God. And you may say, great, that's great. Okay, pastor, I get your point. But I never claimed to be God. Well, Herod never claimed to be God. All he did was nothing. When they all suggested he was something, a God. Has anyone ever said to you, you can be whatever you choose to be. You determine your own truth. Name it and claim it. The truth is what you make it. Above all, be true to your heart. You deserve it. You deserve whatever your heart desires. And, and if they said that to you, did you believe them? Did you want to believe them? Did they look like a cricket? Or maybe a snake? Herod didn't say he was God. I think he just wanted to be God. Like he wanted to be king, and he made himself king. Doesn't everyone in some form dream of being the king? But have you ever met someone that dreamed of being Rhoda? Of being last and least? Humbled rather than exalted? A servant rather than the king? We all seem to dream of being king, but, but actually becoming king, you know, when you read the Bible, it never seems to work all that well for folks, even the best of them. Saul, David, Solomon, they all seem to be happier and better off before they became king than when after they, they, they became king. Things never go well for the pharaohs in the Bible. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon congratulates himself on his great accomplishments, then goes insane for seven years until he learns God is king and makes kings of, quote, the lowest of men. Pilate looked at the truth and said, what is truth? And then crucified the truth after washing his hands. According to Eusebius, the church historian, he eventually killed himself uh, during the reign of Emperor Caligula. And talk about insane. Caligula had been Herod's best friend when they were kids in Rome. Once Caligula was emperor, he declared himself a god, appointed a horse as a senator, and died insane. Caligula succeeded Emperor Tiberius, who was a child muster, and Emperor Caligula was succeeded 13 years later by a truly mad king named Nero. And if you don't trust history, just watch the Game of Thrones, HBO, or follow the lives of people who win the lottery. Or watch what happens to folks when they become legends, like Elvis, the king. Better yet, just observe children who never, ever, ever hear the word no. 
Children who get whatever they want. Children who never have their will violated. Children of parents who make their every wish come true. Children who, who think they are the king of the world and, and then end up despising everything in their world. Spoiled children are the most bored, lonely, and miserable children in all the earth. So was it retribution or mercy that smote King Herod? You know, he seemed pretty miserable to me before he was smoted. Just like Adam and Eve seemed pretty miserable, knitting clothes out of fig leaves, hiding in the trees before they were kicked out of the garden. Maybe God smites those he loves and drives them from the garden because he's delivering them from their own bad dreams, their own evil desires, their own bad will. The will of the world is always a will to death, a will to suicide, wrote Jacques Hillel, the French philosopher and theologian. And, and by will to death, I think Hillel meant the desire to be king the desire to make ourselves in the image of God, which leaves men insane, alone, and trapped in death, what Scripture calls Hades, and is often translated hell. We all lust for hell. When we dream of being king, the world shrinks, everything dies, we end up alone and utterly insane. Listen to what G.K. Chesterton wrote. By asking for pleasure, he, humanity, Adam, lost the chief pleasure, for the chief pleasure is surprise. If a man would make his world large, he must be always making himself small. Alice had to become small to enter Wonderland, like Rhoda. So do you seek to make yourself small or large? Do you seek to be last or first? Let me put it another way. Do you seek to serve or be served? And how much wonder do you experience in your world? You, you know, wonder comes from things that are bigger than you, things that you don't comprehend and control. Wonder comes from things that you don't possess. Uh, wonder comes from things that have not been branded by your, your ego. One of my favorite stories is the story of two Texans that were trying to impress each other with the size of their ranches. One asked the other, what's the name of your ranch? And he replied, the Rockin' R, ABC, Flying W, Circle C, Bar U, Staple 4, Box D, Rollin' M, Rainbows in Silver Spur Ranch. The questioner was very impressed. He said, whee, that is some name. How many cattle do you run on that ranch? And the rancher said, well, not many. Few survived the branding. see, I think very few survive the king's ego. Have you ever noticed how many people seem to just die around kings? Like James, 
Herod's guards, the babies of Bethlehem, and Jesus. One day in the late 80s, I found this book by Shirley MacLaine in the dumpster at Bel Air Presbyterian Church. And so I read it. I don't know why, but I did. Um, page 192, she writes this. If I created my own reality, then on some level and dimension I didn't understand, I had created everything I saw, heard, touched, smelled, tasted, everything I loved, hated, revered, abhorred, everything I responded to or that responded to me. Then I created everything I knew. I was therefore responsible for all there was in my reality. If that was true, then I was everything. As the ancient Hindu texts had taught, I was my own universe. Did that also mean I had created God? And I had created life and death? Was that why I was all there was? A chilling wave of loneliness rippled through me. Yeah. That's what I, I would expect. I mean, if you create every person in your life, there are no persons in your life. They're just figments of your own imagination, your own will, but not other wills. There are no other persons, and therefore, there can be no love. McLean continues, to take responsibility for one's power would be the ultimate expression of the God force. Was this what God meant by the statement, I am that I am. Well, I'm pretty sure that's not what he meant by the statement, I am that I am. I am that I am is God. And, and, and God is love. He is not just one enormous self-centered person. He's three persons and one substance called love, this dance of love. And his word is called the truth. When you dream of being king, your world shrinks, everything dies, you find yourself utterly alone and insane. Mene, Rhoda is not insane. Herod is insane. He hates the truth. And isn't that the very definition of insanity? To no longer subject yourself to an objective reality that we call the truth, but instead to create your own truth or believe that you are the truth. Chesterton wrote this, the madman is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything but his reason. In other words, he thinks that he possesses all reason. In Greek, the word for reason is logos. To be insane is to no longer submit to the logos, but to think that you are the Lord of the logos, the, the Lord of the word of God, which is the truth. Chesterton notes that the mind of a madman moves in a perfect circle. It's just a very, very, very small circle. A madman has complete faith. In himself. And now let me ask you a very, very difficult question. How do you know that you're not mad? I mean, forget about King Herod and Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. 
How do you know that you are not insane? How do you know that you are not simply creating your own reality? When I was about seven, after catching bugs with my best friend, best friend Bradley Braverman, I remember I used to lie on the grass under the sun and just wonder about existence. I wondered if my brain was like sitting in a jar somewhere just creating all of my experiences, including the bugs and including Bradley Braverman. I mean, how would you know? <laughs> when I uh, was in college, the University of Colorado, I took a lot of philosophy courses, and it seemed like just about every philosophy professor at some point would stop the class and say, how do you know? that your brain is not sitting in a jar someplace and you are just imagining these experiences. How would you know? You know, psychological studies show that to a very large extent we each we do that. We each twist the truth, we manufacture the truth to fit our preconceived notions about reality. Quantum physicists reveal that in an utterly shocking way, Consciousness seems to create matter, that, 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 that you have the power to collapse uh, uh, the state of subatomic particles, the quantum state of subatomic particles. So how do you know that you don't create your own reality? How do you know that all reality is not virtual reality? How do you know that the people in your life are not virtual people that you have created and constructed in your own mind. You know, there have been a bunch of movies about that, guys that fall in love with robots or try to fall in love with robots or artificial intelligence that they create or someone creates for them. How do I know that a person is actually a person? I'm a person. And I hope you know that. I am utterly fascinating. That's why I think I spend so much time thinking about me. I mean, within me, there is a world of memories and ideas and thoughts and fears and insecurities and, and hopes and, and dreams and this thing called a will that makes choices. How do I know that there's a universe like that in you? That you have a will and are therefore a person such that we could have a relationship and know this thing called love. How do I know that your will is not merely a product of my own will? Well, wouldn't the best indication that your will is not simply a product of my own will be the fact that you will sometimes disagree with me? Even, better evidence, that you would sin against me. You know, sometimes we imagine what actually happens in the world, and we have a nightmare. But if my imagination always creates my world, I wouldn't create a world of people that disagree with me. See, if I manufactured a virtual woman, which I've thought about, but if I manufactured a virtual woman, she would always agree with me. 
Now, I, I might like that for a time, and I might use that for a time, but I would eventually find myself feeling terribly lonely. I, I'm, I'm pretty darn sure that I'm not married to a virtual woman of my own construction because she does not do whatever I want her to do. So I must suffer what she wants to do. She does not do my will, so I must suffer her will. And, and, yet, and yet, you know, when I'm with her, I feel least alone. No one disagreed with Herod, and he felt thoroughly alone. Just about everybody disagreed with Rhoda, and she seemed to be pretty happy. If I manufactured a virtual woman, she would never disagree with me. If I manufactured a virtual reality, reality would never disagree with me. That is, I would never suffer. But I don't think I'd know God. Because I was assumed that, that I, I was God. And a chilling wave of loneliness would ripple through me or be me. But when I suffer, my heart begins to know, I didn't create that flood. I didn't create that earthquake. I, I didn't create that tsunami. I, I didn't create reality with my own individual will. I, I don't. There must be another will, stronger than my will, that makes the rain and builds the mountains. And so I am not alone. Herod was rich enough and powerful enough that he rarely suffered and he thought he was God and went insane. Rhoda suffered and Rhoda knew God and received the word of God, truth. If I manufactured my own truth, I would never be confused. But because I am usually confused, it's evidence that maybe I am wrestling with the truth. Chesterton wrote, mysticism keeps men sane. The one thing we can't comprehend allows us to comprehend. See, see, follow this. If I manufactured my own reality, if I actually thought that anything my heart desired would come to me, if I dreamed of being king and thought I was the king, if I thought I could make myself in the image of God and therefore become God, then I could not know God and everything would die, and I'd be utterly alone and insane. And the snake said, take the fruit. And oh yeah, you, you can make yourself in the image of God. See, I think the people we often think of as insane may be very sane. And many that this world would call insane or this world would call sane, are, are utterly insane. Why? Because they think they can create themselves in the image and likeness of, of God. So was it retribution or mercy that God kicked humanity out of the garden, subjected creation to futility, consigned all men to disobedience, and said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die? You see, maybe it's the mercy of God that you suffer. Maybe it's the mercy of God that people disagree with you 
sometimes even sin against you. Maybe it's the mercy of God that one day you will die to this walking death that we call life. Several years ago, my childhood best friend, Brad Braverman, died of AIDS. I hadn't seen Brad in, in years, but the family called me because I was the only holy man they knew to do the service. I used to try to tell Brad about God and his word, Jesus, but Brad used to laugh and he couldn't seem to hear. After the service, his sister pulled me aside and she said this, Peter, in the last weeks, Brad seemed to lose touch with reality. He kept mumbling, it's so hard to be God. I can't be God. It's too hard to be God. See, I don't think Brad was losing touch with reality. I think he was bumping into reality. You, you know, if I can convince myself to dream of being Rhoda instead of the king, if I can convince myself to dream of, of being Rhoda, that is to simply serve people, just love people, and stop worrying about exalting myself, I seem to be pretty happy. But usually I dream of being the king. And so I worry about exalting myself. And I, and I get pretty miserable until I experience some suffering. And a bunch of folks maybe disagree with me. I get really bewildered and confused. And then it's like I just break down and I cry out to God, God, I can't do it. It's too hard to be God. I can't be God. I died in myself a bit. I see the truth, and then I'm okay. At the funeral, Brad's girlfriend pulled me aside. And she said, Peter, one day when Brad was struggling, I said, why don't you call your old friend Peter? And he said, oh, Peter, I talk to him all the time. Well, I hadn't been talking to Brad. But you see, maybe the truth that was in me was wrestling with Brad at the edge of the promised land. According to Scripture, we are each already in exile, trapped in death, a lonely little prison that we think of as ourself, our life, or in biblical language, our, our psyche. And we have each constructed this self based on a lie told by the devil that we can make ourselves in the image of God. The Bible refers to that old self as the body of flesh. The, the problem with flesh is not that it's, it's physical. The problem with flesh is that it's like cut off and alone. My flesh only feels its own pleasure and only feels its own pain and therefore cannot know the joy that is love. And God is love. Acts 12, 23. Luke records that Herod was smitten by the angel of God, eaten by worms, and breathed his last. Josephus, the Jewish historian, also records the same incident. He mentions pains in Herod's stomach, but not the worms. And so it seems that Luke is obviously referring to the worm that never dies in Isaiah chapter 66. 
You know, Isaiah prophesies that one day all flesh, that's all people in new bodies, new flesh, will go to the edge of the new Jerusalem and look on the dead bodies of all sinners, which is all people, and see that our old flesh, our corpse, is being consumed by an eternal fire and an immortal worm, a worm that does not die, an immortal worm. Scripture says, and I quote, the King of kings and Lord of lords alone has immortality. So an immortal worm is not an evil worm or a witless worm, but a divine worm with the best of reason and the best of purpose. Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes on the cross, verse 6, I am a worm and no man. You know, on the cross, Jesus destroys our flesh. Revelation 19, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Word of God, smites all flesh. And then he calls to the birds of the air to come and eat the flesh of uh, the kings of the earth and, quote, all men. Then in Revelation 21.4, the kings of the earth who had lost their flesh because the birds ate it, remember it? They bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. The worm eats the body of flesh in which we are prisons. I don't think that's retribution. That's mercy. The fact that this world is subjected to futility, disobedience, suffering, and sin, I don't think that's retribution. That's mercy. Haziel mentioned the worm that afflicted his sister. I think one day we'll see that that was not retribution. It was mercy. Job 19, 25 from the King James Version, Job cries out, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. That's not retribution. That's not payback. That's mercy. You see, I think it's the work of salvation. It's dying and rising with Christ. You can't rise with Christ until you've died with Christ. So through the suffering, sin, and confusion of this world, God destroys the insane illusion that you or I could ever make ourselves in His own image and likeness. And then he reveals the truth. God is salvation. Yahashua, Jesus. And that's what the word means, Jesus. And with Jesus, God makes us in his own image. Seeing Jesus crucified and risen from the dead destroys the lie and creates us in the image of God. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. A man cannot think himself out of mental evil. Remember the little circle? A man cannot think himself out of mental evil. Curing a madman is not arguing with a philosopher. It's casting out a devil. And so I think salvation always looks something like this. I have not passed through fire and death to bandy crooked words with a witless worm. Stay order. Son of Thanger! Too long have you sat in the shadows. <laughs> you have no power here, Gandalf the Grey. 
Salvation is a mad king waking to the reality of love. I imagine that mad King Herod descended into Hades the day his body died. But scripture says that Jesus also descended into Hades and preached to the spirits in prison. And so I believe that one great day, King Herod will bring his glory into the new Jerusalem, just like the Revelation says. But you see, you don't have to descend into Hades at all. By faith, you can see Jesus now and begin to live now. And you will have nothing to fear the day that your body dies because you will have surrendered the lie that you are your own creator and savior and king. And then you can receive the love that is your creator, savior, and king. And so this is my point. Stop dreaming of being the king and dream of the king. Stop dreaming about making yourself in the image of God and dream of God. Stop dreaming about making yourself good and behold the good. You know, if you would just close your eyes for a minute, I'd like you to imagine something, or if you will, dream something, okay? So I need you to, I need you to work at this. If you just close your eyes, imagine this. And I'll tell you, at the table, when we get to the table, you can open your eyes, but for now, keep them closed till we get to the table. Imagine you're a mad king. Mad as in certifiably nuts, and mad as in angry. You're nuts because you think that reality should conform to your will. And you're mad at God because reality has not conformed to your will. In fact, it feels like everything has died. And you're terribly alone and very confused. You're a mad king, and you're crucifying the king of kings because there cannot be two king of kings and lord of lords. And you want to be king of kings 
and Lord of Lords. I'm simply asking you to imagine that you are yourself, a sinner. You're imagining the truth. It's about noon on a hot, dusty spring day just outside of Old Jerusalem. You are part of an immense crowd chanting in anger. In fact, since early that morning, you have been chanting, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. He hangs naked and beaten to a pulp on a tree in this garden that they call Calvary. The sky goes black. The earth shakes. You hear him cry from the cross. Then, as you look at him, he looks at you. His eyes lock on you. He stares at you with infinite longing for you. He loves you. He has made himself a slave for the love of you. You wanted to be God. Look, this is God. You wanted to know the good. Look. This is the good. You wanted to take the life. Look, he's giving the life. You dreamt of being a king. And look, he is the king of kings. And he has dreamt of Rhoda. And being like Rhoda serving you. You dream of being the king and everything dies. He dreams of dying that everything might live. You dream of being the king and find yourself all alone. He is the king and he's dreaming of communion with you and all creation. You dream of being the king and you go insane. He dreams of you and he is sane. He is sanity. He is the truth. He's the logic. He's the logos of God. He's the revelation of love. You have dreamt of being the king and all along the king has been dreaming of you. He is passing through death and fire for the love of you. You have dreamt of being the king, and all along the king has been dreaming of you, dreaming of him. He is descending into the prison that is your soul to help you dream his dreams. You have dreamt of being the king, and all along the king has dreamt of being you, and of you being him. He dreams that the two would become one, 
He dreams that you might be his temple, his body, his bride. He dreams that his life would be your life. You see, it turns out that you are not the dreamer, but the dream. And he is a far better dreamer than you. It turns out that you are not the dreamer, but the dream. And right now, as you gaze on him, he makes you in his own image. He destroys your old prison of flesh and pride and gives you a new heart. It's his heart. And then, anything your heart desires will come to you. Do you see, it wasn't your dreams. It wasn't your dream to make you in the image and likeness of God. It was his dream. And this is how he fulfills his dream that is you. He took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Dream of him. Amen. Oh, Lord God, this morning we confess to you our sin. We confess that we've been mad kings, but this morning, Lord God, we give glory to you. All praise and honor and glory goes to you, and I thank you for that, because, Lord God, when I do that, well, I'm free of the problem that is me, <laughs> and I see that you are good. You are better than I ever imagined. And I don't have to worry about my dreams because you're dreaming of me. In Jesus, I thank you. Amen. Amen. So listen, um, baptism, sim, baptism, I can't talk. Baptism symbolizes the fact that ultimately you're not the dreamer, but the dream. And that God's dreams are better than your dreams. So baptism is a symbolizes the fact that you're losing your life, your psyche, you're surrendering it, it, it to the Lord and allowing Him to dream you. And He is a better dreamer than you. You know, when Jonathan was little, he dreamed that heaven was a party at Chuck E. Cheese. Well, the dream wasn't entirely bad, but you see, I think God is adjusting that dream. He's changing that dream. He's teaching John about love, what other people are, and what suffering is, and forgiveness is, and compassion is, because heaven is a party. It's just not a Chuck E. Cheese. Well, I don't know. Maybe there's a Chuck E. Cheese, for all I know. I've got nothing against Chuck E. Cheese. But uh, he's uh, adjusting all of our dreams. When I was little, I wanted to be Zorro. And uh, through a lot of pain and struggle and sorrow, I realized that God wanted me to swing a different sword. And I'm, he's not done with my dreams yet. He's dreaming us. He's uh, dreaming up a new creation. And in that new creation, there's no more suffering. And in that new creation, everyone agrees 
because we all sing the same song. But you see, we know what another person is. We know what God is, and we have come to know who love is. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel.